after the introduction on the piano. thank thee that we can draw near into thy holy and thy divine presence. We thank thee, O Father, for the veil which is rent, and we can draw near through the blood of Christ and come into thy divine presence. We thank thee, O Father, for every spiritual blessing, that we are now the people of God, 
and for the blessings we have. And we thank you as all through the work of Christ at Calvary that we have these blessings. We ask our Father as we come tonight that we might have hearts ready to receive thy word and ears open to hear what thou the Lord has to say to us. Help us, our Father, to be obedient to thy mind and to thy word as it is written. We thank you, our Father, for the, the Bible which thou hast given us and the truth in it. And we pray, our Father, that we might be students of it, that we come and we feed upon Christ from his, his word. And so we thank thee for the Saviour. We thank thee we have him as our own and personal Saviour. And we just give thee our thanks for him. We remember Blair. We thank thee, our Father, for his presence with us. And we just pray he might know the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he opens thy word and seeks to minister from it. We remember too the campaign that he's in the midst of in Whitburn. And we just pray that we'll bless the activities of the work there. And pray that through the preaching of the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit, there might be some who will come to know Christ as their own and personal Saviour. So we look to thee for thy blessing and thy help tonight in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Our next hymn tonight is number 659. 659. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee. In heaven so bright, I have seen with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. We trust that that might be which every one of us can say, my Jesus, I love thee. After we sing this hymn, Blair is going to come and minister the word of God. So we'll stand and sing after the introduction on the piano. <coughs>
Good evening, everyone. It's a, a real joy uh, to be here in Holborn. It's good to be back in Aberdeen. Seems a long time since I, I last visited here, but it's so good to renew fellowship with everyone. And uh, thank you for the warm welcome. Those were great hymns, Alec. I, I really enjoyed the singing, and uh, I trust that now as we turn to the scriptures, we might be able to say uh, that the, the, the hymns have been very fitting for what I'm going to read. Isaiah chapter 50, please. Book of Isaiah and reading in chapter 50. <clears throat> Prophecy of Isaiah and reading in chapter 50. <clears throat> and we'll... Excuse me, commence to read at verse 4. Verse 4 of Isaiah 50. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me, who will contend with me, let us stand together. Who is my adversary, let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up. That will do for a reading. This evening we know that the Lord will, will bless his word to our hearts this evening. The passage that we have read from tonight is the third of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four beautiful presentations of the Lord Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah concerning his perfect servant character. And really it is a wonderful study to see Christ in Isaiah. It's a wonderful study to see Christ in the word of God. But Isaiah is really like a fifth gospel. It is like the gospel of the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus is presented so vividly and so beautifully in the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you're interested in learning more about the perfect servant, the Lord Jesus, as the perfect servant of Jehovah, well, you read about it in Isaiah 42. Uh, from verses 1 to 4, you have the introduction of the perfect servant in Isaiah 42. <coughs> Excuse me, it all starts with these memorable words. Behold, take a good look at my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. And in Isaiah chapter 42, the, the, the Spirit of God is drawing attention to the perfect servant in stark contrast to Israel. Israel had proved to be an unfaithful servant of Jehovah. 
The nation of Israel had become fruitless, they had become obdurate, they had become hard-hearted. They were far from being perfect servants, the nation of Israel. And in stark contrast to that, the word of God comes with power to our hearts when we read it. Behold, take a good look at my servant. And you know, a beautiful thing is said when Isaiah 42 is being quoted in the New Testament. You know, it's amazing to see Isaiah being fulfilled in the New Testament. It just gives us real encouragement that the word of God, the Bible we have in our hand is relevant and it's reliable. And all these prophecies hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ are fulfilled in Christ. No discrepancies, no grey areas. We don't need to be ashamed. We can point to the word of God and the fulfilment. For example, Isaiah 6, John chapter 12. Isaiah 42, Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew, after the Lord Jesus had healed a man with a withered hand, Isaiah 42 is quoted. But there's a lovely addition. Behold my servant, my chosen, my beloved. And you're going to see if you take the time to study the perfect servant character of the Lord Jesus, you're going to discover he's an elect servant. He's a chosen servant. He's a beloved servant. He's a wise servant. He's a prudent servant. He's a suffering servant. And Isaiah 42, that's the attention grabber. Look at him. Turn your eyes on him. And that's the first mention of the servant songs in Isaiah. You only have to travel a few chapters to chapter 49 and you have the call and the commission of the perfect servant, verses 1 to 6 of Isaiah 49. And you have the purpose of his call for the restoring of Israel and for the redemption of mankind. We'll leave off chapter 50 for a minute because obviously we're going to return and look at the verses But you go to chapter 42, uh, sorry, chapter 52, and verse 13 of that amazing chapter goes like this. Behold, behold, my servant shall be exalted and extolled. You'll deal prudently. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And it goes right into chapter 53, where the suffering of Jehovah's perfect servant is seen in precious detail. As we think of the Saviour's substitutionary work upon the cross, so vividly portrayed in that amazing chapter. So that's how the servant songs begin, and that's how they end. And really the the, the purpose of my study and the purpose, I trust, of me coming the miles to Aberdeen tonight is this, that we might be occupied with the Lord Jesus. I don't know what kind of week you've had. I don't know where you find yourself spiritually tonight. Many of you are my friends and some of you I'm looking at for the first time shows that I'm getting older. Don't know how that makes you feel, Alec. Me was at school with my mum, but I don't know how you're doing tonight. But wherever you find yourself spiritually, whatever the spiritual your spiritual temperature is this evening, and even if you're not saved, 
This would be a great night for you to turn your eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm in gospel meetings just now back home in Whitburn with uh, Ian Jackson and I've been thinking about the Lord Jesus and trying to present him every night, lift him up for everyone to see so that men and women will be drawn savingly to the Lord Jesus and hear his irresistible call of grace. And I was kind of wishing that that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, was in our hymn book. And I had a wee discussion with my wife about it, and she's normally right. And she says, no, that's a hymn for believers, Blair. I think it's a hymn for everybody. And if you've never stopped to look at the Lord Jesus to consider him, this would be a wonderful night if you did. Turn your eyes upon the Lord Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. It's a very interesting hymn. The more I sang it this week, and annoyed everybody in the house, I started wondering when it was written and who wrote it. And what's the history behind it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And it was actually written by a lady called Helen Lamel. Very interesting lady. Helen Lamel was a, was a, a Christian songwriter. But she went through a very difficult time in her life when she started to write contemporary secular songs. She got her eyes off the Lord Jesus, as we all do if we're honest at times. And she started sort of straddling both sides of the aisle, writing Christian songs and then writing other songs, blues songs and jazz songs. This is the 1920s. And uh, a very low ebb in her life in the city of Seattle, she came across a leaflet written by a lady called Lilius Trotter. And 20 years earlier, this lady uh, Trotter had actually written this leaflet in Algeria. She was a missionary and serving the Lord in Algeria. And she wrote this pamphlet that was really based on uh, Hebrews 12 verse 2. Hebrews 12 verse 2 goes like this, looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest we become wearied and faint in our minds. And Lilius Trotter wrote this pamphlet, and one of the lines in the pamphlet was this, So then turn your eyes upon him, and look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Do you know, as Helen Lamel, at a very low spiritual lab, read this, she got down before God, and she rededicated her life to the Lord Jesus, and confessed her waywardness. And that very evening she wrote the memorable hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in your, his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. She, she never looked back. She only served God, only wrote Christian songs. Her life was not without trial. She was married. And after some years of marriage, she developed a 
problem with her eyes that eventually led to her being totally blind. Her husband couldn't handle it. He left her. She was only in her 40s. But at the age of 97, she was visited by a fellow Christian. And she was asked the question, How are you? How are you doing? And she says, I'm fine. In the things that matter. Because every day, I turn my eyes upon Jesus. And I look full in his wonderful face. Great story. Real to get the history behind what we sing. I wonder, have you turned your eyes upon the Lord Jesus today? It really, it really dictates how our week will be and how our spiritual experience will be if we set our course every day just to turn our eyes to the Word of God and turn our hearts to our Saviour And be occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great antidote to everything that ills us. And all the perplexing problems of the world that we can't sort out. But regarding our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the word of God. And we have the opportunity every day to be occupied with Christ. So really that is my my burden my exercise tonight to look at the Lord Jesus and to look at him as the perfect servant of Jehovah. He is a perfect servant. He's a perfect son. He's an obedient son. There's no inferiority as we think of the Lord Jesus as being an obedient son or a perfect servant. There's equality and the Lord Jesus in wondrous grace. Philippians 2, being in the form of God, Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form, the morph of the servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm so glad. The, The eternal son, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, came down to be a servant came down to be the sacrifice that God demanded because of our sins. What a saviour he is. And Isaiah chapter 50 is the third servant song. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 52 into 53. Well, this is the third one. And I feel it's slightly different from the other servant songs. In all the other servant songs, 42, 49, 52, into 53, it's what Jehovah says about the servant. It's Jehovah eulogizing the servant. Jehovah is saying, look at him. Be occupied with him. Don't take your eyes off of him. Drink deep in the well of salvation and be satisfied with him. He's my servant. He's my perfect servant. Look at him. But in this chapter that we've read from tonight, it's what the servant says about his relationship with Jehovah. So that makes it unique, makes it slightly different. It's what Jehovah says about the servant in the other songs, but this one is what the servant says about his relationship, his mission. His anatomy, his ear, his tongue, his back, his face. 
His mission, his purpose. It's what the servant says. Oh, that we might have ears to hear his words tonight. Oh, that we might have eyes anointed with the eye salve of heaven. That we might behold his face tonight. That our hearts might be moved in his presence. And that as we come to remember the Lord Jesus in the morning in the will of God. That there might be worship. That there might be material. Our hearts are indicting a good matter. We speak of the things that we have made as touching the king. Our tongue is the pen of a ready writer. As we're occupied with the words and the worth and the work of the Lord Jesus. This is life eternal. A personal relationship with this amazing person. This unique man. This obedient son. This perfect servant. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 4 is this. That the servant, the secret of his success, what makes him different, what makes him conspicuous, what makes him unique in his service is this. He is absolutely conversant with the word of God and he's controlled by it. Do you notice his language? He says in verse 4, the Lord God... Adonai Jehovah. These mighty titles of deity. The Lord God. Adonai Jehovah. Hath given me the tongue of the learned. Oh the reverent language of the servant. As he thinks of his intimate relationship with Jehovah. He says the Lord God. Adonai Jehovah. Four times. Verse 4. Verse 5. Verse 7, verse 9, that is repeated, Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Jehovah, four times over. Now, there's absolutely no coincidence that Israel, the flawed, unfruitful servant, use exactly the same language, but in a totally different context. If you would read Isaiah chapter 49, the previous chapter, you will discover that Israel, Zion, they say, Adonai has forgotten me. They say Jehovah has forsaken us. You think of all that Jehovah did for Israel. Chapter 5 of this wonderful prophecy tells us that this was Jehovah's vineyard. And he had done so much. He tended it. He dug it. He tended it. He looked after it. He blessed it. And when he came to look for fruit, there was no fruit. When he came to look for grapes, there was wild grapes. And it's just a picture of Israel, the nation. They had become so hard-hearted. They'd become so stubborn and so disobedient that ultimately in rebellion, in chapter 49, they say, Jehovah has forsaken us. That's not true. <laughs> that is a lie. Because scripture says Jehovah forsakes not his saints. Adonai has forgotten us. No. Israel had forgotten God days without number. But never had Jehovah or Adonai forgotten about his people. Notice the difference here. Our Saviour, the perfect servant, says this. The Lord God hath given me, Adonai Jehovah, hath given me the tongue of the learned. 
Adonai Jehovah hath opened mine ear. And the dictates of heaven are poured into the opened ear of the servant on a daily basis. Such humility of mind and such consistency of life. Do you get that? You see, the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant here is not parading pride. That's impossible because he's sinless. We live in a world of inflated egos. We live in a world where arrogance and crass talk really is applauded. (coughs) Not not in our Saviour's (coughs) conduct. He says, no, the Lord God hath given me. The Lord God will help me. The Lord God is near me. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. There's humility and reverence. There's also consistency of communion. You see, his ear was opened. You just take a whistle-stop tour through the, 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 the Gospels and you will find that morning by morning his ear was opened. Mark chapter 1. The Lord Jesus Christ goes out to the mountain early in the morning Luke chapter 6 the night before he chose the 12 apostles he goes to the mountain and he spends all night in prayer to God and he's praying constantly Luke is is the gospel of the dependent praying man and he prays at his baptism and he prays at the transfiguration and he prays in the mountain and he prays in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays on the cross He's always praying. And we're servants. You may think it's only people that stand up here that are servants. We're all servants. Every redeemed saint of God is a servant. That's why Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord, we are all servants. And we take our cue from the perfect servant. Humility of mind, but consistency of life. Praying, reading. There's no paragon of virtue standing here to, to tonight who, who would try and enforce some kind of pattern, some one size fits all yoke. We're all different. But the moment we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in danger. And the 24 hour day that we go through without reading the scriptures and without praying, we're in danger. Because what happens is this, we take our eyes off Christ, our hearts grow cold. Our hearts grow cold, we look for something else or someone else to fill that void. And before we know it, we're in real difficulty. Let's look at the Lord Jesus. What was the secret of his success on this level? He is absolutely conversant with the word of God and he is controlled by it. 
So his ear was opened and his tongue was touched. He had a ready expert tongue to speak a word in season to them that are weary. It's not for self-aggrandizement. It's not for any uh, pride or arrogance or ego. It's to help others. He speaks that word in season to help others. And his ear was opened every single morning to hear the word of God. He says, doesn't he, my meek, John 4, is to do the will of him that sent me. I always think that Psalm 1 is a picture of the Lord Jesus. Of the Lord Jesus in his fruitful service. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor standeth in the way of sinners. Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. He's like that tree planted by the rivers of water. Bringeth forth his fruit in season. And whatsoever he doeth. It prospers all oh, the fruitfulness of this man, of this servant, the perfect service. <coughs> Do you know this word learned, the tongue of the learned in verse 4, it is also translated the same word, disciple in Isaiah chapter 8. And a disciple, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is an imitator. That really is the threefold definition of a disciple. A learner, a follower, an imitator. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he follows the word of God. Puts into practice the word of God. He learns the word of God. Wonder of all wonder. He's the perfect son, eternal, but he is the perfect man. In his sinless humanity, his dependence upon the Lord for everything. So, his convert, he's conversant with the word of God and he's controlled by it. What about us? How much of a controlling influence in our life is the word of God? What part does the Bible play? In our lives. Talking just now. Dotting all the I's. And crossing all the T's. With regards to. um, Tenses. And voices. And um, I'm speaking about. Passive and all that. I'm not thinking about voices that you would hear. In the night or anything like that. I'm thinking about. Practical things. We control by the Bible. Are we conversant with the Bible? Well, that's the way the perfect servant went. And we should follow him. We should follow him. Notice as well, as we move down, that I could spend a lot of time in verse 4, but attention is drawn to his tongue, his ready expert tongue, his ear that is opened morning by morning. But, but notice verse 5. Verse 5 and verse 6 really would teach us not only is the perfect servant conversant with the word of God and controlled by it, but he's absolutely committed to the will of God. Absolutely committed. Mind you, our Lord Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything, every step of the journey. He knew everything that awaited him. 
And notice his words. The Lord God hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious. That's the point. Neither turned away back. Verse 5. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Oh, the wonder of these words. Perhaps we grow a wee bit familiar with them. We maybe hear them quoted on a Sunday morning and it's a wee bit old hat. But with freshness tonight, let's think about what these words mean. What does it actually mean that the perfect servant knew everything that lay ahead? He was committed to the will of God. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am pained until it be accomplished. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant, knew every detail of the will of God and perfectly acquiesced with it. Never the slightest suggestion of rebellion. Never the slightest suggestion of turning back. We used to sing Bible class in Whitburn from the track. He turned not back. Praise his name. I often think about this when I read Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul gathers the Ephesian elders in a place called Miletus. And he says to them, among other things, he says, Listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going bound to Jerusalem in the spirit. And I don't know the things that befall me there. Our Saviour could never say that. He knew every detail of his suffering. And notice what he says here. I turn not back. The word rebellious here in verse 5 indicates to us an inward attitude. He was not rebellious. And turn not back really is the outward result. And again the Lord Jesus the perfect servant is so different from backsliding Israel. So different from their stop start relationship with Jehovah. And even noble servants that you read about in the word of God. Never find the Lord Jesus under a juniper tree. Never find the Lord Jesus like Gideon. Or Moses even. Speaking unadvisedly with his lips. All these great men. Even noble servants. The Lord Jesus Christ is so different. So committed to the word of God. And what did it mean for him? Well we look at verse 6. We've thought about his tongue, we've thought about his ear, but now we're being introduced to his back. Verse 6, this is what it meant for the Lord Jesus, the perfect servant, to be committed to the will of God. It meant this, his back would be smitten. I gave my back to the smiters. And despite his perfect knowledge, despite knowing that that Roman scourge would bite deep into his back until it was just like a ploughed field. He still manfully and courageously turned not back. Oh, the courage. Oh, the bravery of our Saviour. He went forward. You think of his gl- the glory of him in John chapter 18 in the garden. The glory and dignity of his person. As they come to arrest him with torches and with weapons, the Prince of Peace and the Light of the World, how ironic. And they come to arrest him and the Lord Jesus goes forward to meet them. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. 
I am he, and they all fall on their face. The Lord Jesus allows them to regain their composure, and then he gives himself. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Mind you, the awful mockery and the physical torture of the Lord Jesus began before the the judgment hall in Gavatha. The Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to be spat on in Caiaphas' palace. The Saviour knew what it was to be ridiculed and to be smitten in Mark chapter 14 and verse 65, the beginning of the awful atrocities that were performed against him. But I gave my back to the smiters. That definitely reminds us of the scourging that Pilate commanded to happen against the Lord Jesus. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I'm not exactly sure when this happened. Maybe somebody could help me. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Did this happen in Mark 14, verse 65, in Caiaphas' house? Did this happen when Herod and the men of war set the Saviour at naught? Did this happen on the way to the cross or in Gabbatha? But somewhere, that dreadful morning, the hair on the face of the Lord Jesus was ripped off. Quite amazing when you read the Proverbs. You know, a a, a rod is for the back of him that is a fool. You read also about the cheeks of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hair being torn from them. that, That wouldn't be clinical. That wouldn't be in any way humane. What I'm thinking about is this. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, there's a man by the name of Hanan. And Hanan has a bereavement in his family. His father dies. And David, the king of Israel, sends unto Hanan some of his servants to, to, to console them, to show kindness unto Hanan. Hanan was badly advised by his contemporaries and and Hanan took David's servants and shaved off, shaved off one half of their beard and tore their garments and scripture says that the men were greatly ashamed. The operative words here are shaved off one half of the beard and greatly ashamed. And David was absolutely incandescent with rage. David told the men to wait at Jericho until their beards were grown and then he would execute vengeance against Hanan. Such was the shame, such was the reproach of shaving off one half of these men's beards. This verse tells us that the Saviour's back and the Saviour's cheeks Torn, his back was lacerated, the hair would come off in clumps, not only of hair but his very flesh. And then to add insult to injury, his face was struck with a rod, and with open hands, 
and with clenched fists. Every way of inflicting pain and shame on a person was perpetrated against our Saviour. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. There's a psalm, I think, yes, Psalm 69 says this, Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. We we sing, don't we? All the shame men heaped upon thee, thou dost patiently endure. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. The wonder, there's an entrancing wonder and splendour about the sufferings of Christ. I know this is at the hands of men. I know these are not atoning sufferings. I'm aware of all that. Well, might we sing, I love thee, for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. What a spectacle. Back lacerated. His cheeks not just red with buffeting, but flesh torn, blood spattered, spat upon as well. In grace, he could have prayed presently, any time he says, I could pray and my father would send more than 12 legions of angels. Remember reading somewhere in, in Chronicles, I think it was, that one angel destroyed the entire Assyrian army. One angel. Can you imagine what more than 12 legions of angels would have done? Wiped them out. Wiped out every Roman soldier in the entire empire. More than 12 legions. But thank God, no prayer was made, no call was given. Someone has said, the angels were confined to barracks. Thank God they were. Saviour here. I hid not my face. I turn not back. He's committed to the will of God. We sometimes say, it's a good thing we don't know what's round the next corner, and that is true. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. And one day at a time, thank God for that, the Lord Jesus knew every detail of his suffering. He knew every moment. He knew every wave and billow. And he turned up back. He's committed to the will of God. And in it all, he maintained a quiet dignity. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him that judges righteously. What a perfect example he is. What a perfect pattern servant he is. Notice though, in the last verses, from verse 7 onwards, he is absolutely confident of the help of God. He's committed to the will of God, and he's conversant with the word of God and controlled by it, but he is confident of the help of This is not going to end in tragedy. I was trying to tell somebody about this recently, not a believer, that the cross was not an accident. 
That Calvary was no afterthought. That it was planned by God. Prophesied in the scriptures. Predicted by Christ. And the Lord Jesus, the perfect servant. 720 years perhaps before the cross says. I will not be ashamed. He will help me. The Lord God, verse 7, will help me. I will not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face. Here's another repetition of the word face. Notice his face was shame covered in verse 6. But now his face is steadfast in verse 7. I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. And we have set before his beloved in this verse. The steadfast unmovable flint-like face of the Lord Jesus. You you come to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 and you get a beautiful fulfilment of this verse. Just as verse 6, as we think of the shame-covered face of Christ, is fulfilled in Mark 14 verse 65. In that one verse, in Caiaphas' palace, the Saviour's face was spat on and buffeted and struck. So verse 6 is fulfilled in Mark 14.65. So verse 7 is fulfilled in Luke 9.51. Luke 9.51 is a turning point in your understanding of Luke's gospel. You can write over Luke's gospel the journeys of the Son of Man. And broadly speaking, generally speaking, Luke is split into two major journeys. His journeys in Galilee, chapters 1 to 9. And from chapters 9, verse 52 onwards... His journey to Jerusalem. His journey in Judea. And in verse nine, verse 51 of chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. We read these words. And it came to pass. When the time was come. That he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's verse 7 of Isaiah 50. Oh the joy. Oh the reliability and relevance of the word of God. May that infuse us with encouragement this evening that the Bible is no haphazard book. But this formula is repeated over and over again. And the Lord Jesus, he steadfastly, the word is sterizo, it's the idea of being resolute, being absolutely fixed. His face was set to go to Jerusalem. Nothing would come in. Even Peter would be told, Peter, the cup that my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, get behind, get thee behind me, Satan, he would say. And the Lord Jesus Christ would not be thwarted by the might of Rome. He would not be thwarted by the wiles of the Sanhedrin. He would not be thwarted even by a well-meaning disciple who wanted him to deviate from the pathway of obedience. The Lord Jesus set his face steadfastly. He's committed to the will of God and he's confident of the help of God. See that wee word there in verse 51 of Luke 9 that I quoted. The time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Don't think that's the cross Full stop. Being received up, the Lord Jesus was looking beyond the cross. The Lord Jesus was looking to another mountain, not Calvary, but all of it. Obviously, he had to go to the cross. Obviously, he knew everything that would happen on that Calvary. 
But to be received up was the idea of all of its mountain and heaven receiving him. Beautiful, beautiful study. Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3. Received up in glory. Received up in glory and into glory. Carried up. Welcomed up. Caught up. Many doors were closed to him on earth, but all heaven was open to receive him. The time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And you know, look, that section from Luke 9 onwards, you read words like these in Luke 13, journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke 19, is it verse 41? When he was come near, he comes down the Mount of Olives. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. I always remember a meeting years ago when the late Mr. Flanagan spoke about his journey of grace when he was come near. He beheld the city, his look of love. He wept over it, his tears of sorrow. And the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly journeying towards Jerusalem. And as I said already, he, he turned not back. Oh, the bravery. Oh, the courage. Oh, the consistency. Oh, the perfection of our Saviour's service. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. <coughs> Mine elect. My beloved. He shall not fail. And you know, there was no coarseness in his service. Faithfulness isn't equated with how coarse and crude and callous you can be to your fellow believers. That's not faithfulness. Lord Jesus Christ moved through as a perfect gentleman. Went about doing good. Healing all those that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And you had to speak Serious words of truth at times to whitened sepulchres and to wicked men. But Jehovah would say, Look at him. Bruised reed, he'll not break. Smoking flax, he'll not quench. He's the servant who is worthy of our consideration. Consider him. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. May God give us help to focus on the Lord Jesus. Because one day very soon we're going to see his face. Thank God it's not going to be a shame covered face. It's not going to be a face marred with the marks of man's brutality or cruel spittle not going to be anointed with spittle but we're going to see him as he is and our Bible closes with these words his servant shall serve him and they shall see his face and so I would say as I close tonight this evening let us keep looking turning our eyes upon Jesus because we're not here forever and all too soon we're going to be in glory, looking at Christ, and He's all that will matter. So let's turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus.
and look full in his wonderful face. Be occupied with Christ because it will be worth it all. When we see the Lord Jesus, life's trials, whatever week you've had, life's trials will seem so small. When we see him, one look at his dear face will all the trials of earth erase. So bravely, bravely run the race till we see Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we give thanks for our time around the person of the Lord Jesus. We, we long our God to have eyes to behold him and for hearts to appreciate him and love him as we really should. We, we confess our coldness at times and our waywardness. So often we feel remote and so very far removed from where we should be. But we thank you for these times when we can be occupied with the Lord Jesus to, to be taken up with his glories and his grace, to be taken up with his suffering and yet his singular attraction. We thank you there's no more beautiful person than thy son. He is altogether lovely. And we commend ourselves to thee. We long that we might go from this meeting with a, a determination to every day find Christ in the scriptures. And we long, our God, that we might hide thy word in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We thank thee for our time together of fellowship, not only uh, thinking about scripture, but we give thanks for an opportunity now to converse with each other and we thank thee for refreshments and we pray that later we might all be taken to where we're going in safety. We ask this in the Saviour's name. Amen. We thank our Father, we ask for that ministry as we consider the perfect sermon and the perfect sermon and the perfect sacrifice. First, and then it causes the Lord to bless you. We're going to sing 542, and after we sing the end, let us refreshments, so please remain with us. Hear me, dear O blessed Lord, who works with heavenly comfort, but there I do, we realize these, till this Lord's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hand, he leadeth me. His faithful forward, I think, for by his hand, he leadeth me. And the same five or two, after he